Welcome to the Maintainable Software Podcast, where we explore the art of improving existing software with seasoned practitioners who have helped organizations work past the problems often associated with technical debt and legacy code. I'm your host, Robbie Russell. On this episode, Jared Santo joins us from the outskirts of Omaha, Nebraska in the United States. Jared is currently the managing editor of Changelog Media and the co-host of the Changelog Podcast and a few others. Jared Santo, we're so glad to have you join us on Maintainable. Welcome. Hi, thanks. Happy to be here. So as you reflect on your experience in the industry, what do you believe are a few common characteristics of, dare I say, well-maintained software? Well, uh, well-maintained software, you know, hard to come by sometimes, but uh, generally I would say automated test suite is a huge asset to a piece of software to keep it well-maintained. Um, in terms of the actual code itself, an emphasis on readability is always nice to have. It allows you to come back to it later and actually maintain it and know what's going on. And clarity over cleverness, which I guess plays into readability, doesn't it? So being clever feels good, but it never feels good when you come back to clever code because sometimes it's too clever for you to understand what's going on and it ends up biting you. So I, I think those three things are definitely aspects of well-maintained software, but there's probably plenty more as well. Yeah, I'm sure. You know, I want to curious around, you know, you talk about cleverness. Do you feel like there is a, like there's any sort of arc to your own maturity as a software developer to be like, oh, look what I can do in a, one or two lines of code versus, oh, I could do this in 10 lines of code and it might be more readable. Yeah. There's definitely an arc. I think you start off just trying to get it to work. And I remember just struggling to have code that executed according to what I desired it to do. And so in my early years, I definitely wasn't being clever. I was just trying to be effective. And then as you get into that middle phase, kind of like your sophomore album, right? So you're <laughs> starting to feel okay with your skills and you can accomplish some things. Maybe you've done this seven times now and you realize, oh, there's a better way. And so I think probably in those middle years, I began to appreciate clever code. And hey, as a, as a curious, interested person, I still appreciate clever code when I see it. It's, it's always fascinating and impressive. And then I had to maintain my own clever code over time. And that's when I guess the, the experience of having to do that makes you rethink that and realize actually it was good enough the first time before I came up with that awesome trick that made it yeah, seven lines shorter or abstracted a nice function that I can call three places, but it doesn't actually work in this other place. I thought it did, but it doesn't. Like those things definitely have come with experience. Also on the, you know, Ryan, we we're talking about readability. What languages have you typically been working with over the years? So I started in Perl, which is not exactly a readability language, is it? <laughs> I started in Perl. And C++, this is like in school, right? But I liked Perl quite a bit more than C++, so I definitely gravitated towards that. I didn't consider myself a programmer at first. I was like a networking guy and, a, and an infosec kind of guy. And so I was always considered myself a scripter and an automator until I got out of college and started working in industry. And I was supporting some networks and I, I wrote a bunch of scripts and I wanted to learn web development. So I started off like pimping my WordPress blog and so PHP was something I learned early on. And then I found Ruby 
and I spent many years in Ruby. I have since taken up Elixir. Of course, when you're doing web apps, you're learning JavaScript, you're learning CSS and those things, the whole stack. But Ruby, JavaScript, and then recent years, Elixir, and a little bit of Go, but I'm not proficient in Go quite yet. That's interesting. I uh, share that early era of being exposed to Perl and like I, mean, I one of my first few jobs was working with Perl at a company and it was all like CGI it was well it was web apps but it was like yeah CGI ben. but it was very yeah exactly there wasn't like a lot of uh know, people listening might not know this but there was a period where you would like an HTML page would just post to like a Perl script you know and you, that would run and then there'd be like all the logic for lots of different scenarios and that and then it was basically like it was kind of gnarly. Yeah, <laughs> procedural looking and <laughs> procedural for sure. In a weird way, I have like this weird nostalgia for that period of my own coding skills. I feel like, oh, I got to learn a lot of things. You mentioned like, like doing like networking or automating things on servers. So it was a lot of like, you know, server admin tasks. We, you know, we didn't use like language around like automated DevOps or anything back then. But it was all like, how do we automate backups? And well, I'm going to do this in a Perl script. Or, right. It's like Bash and Perl and then Ruby were all tools that I used. And I remember com converting a bunch of Perl scripts to Ruby once I fell in love with Ruby just because I wanted to. I was like, oh, these can all be Ruby now. And I went back and I rewrote a bunch of scripts. Probably part of the clever phase. One of the things I was kind of curious about there was the, you mentioned readability. Do you find that when you were working with Ruby, because I think one of the things about, a lot of people talk about Ruby as being like, well, it's very expressive. It's very English-like. It's Did you find you got to reduce the amount of documentation? Were you able to start working with Ruby? Yes. So when I when I learned Ruby via Rails, I was still pretty young in my career. This is like the 2005, 2006 years. I found Ruby easy to learn because I could read other people's code. Now there's also this like artistic side to Ruby, kind of the why the lucky stiff kind of things. If you if you dig into his projects, you're like, I don't know what's going on here. And so like when you you get to this extra level with Ruby, it's so expressive that you can do metaprogramming, you can do a lot of things and really manipulate not just what you're building, but the language itself, which is cool. But that stuff isn't so readable because as me coming to it, I'm like, I didn't understand, you know, what, what was going on when you're like rewriting functions and like grabbing the singleton class of the class. I can't remember the, the lingo, but that stuff can get unreadable, but at its core, like in its most base level, I still think it's the most readable programming language because a lot of the somewhat arbitrary syntax melts away and you're left with almost prose. Interesting. Do you use the metaphor technical debt at all? I have, yes. Um, I've also re recently read some people saying we should go away from technical debt as a metaphor and just use maintainable as a metaphor. But I do think there's value in the idea of I'm going to trade in quality, these things, maintainability right now in order to move faster intentionally, knowing that I have to pay that back later. I think if you're intentional about it, I think technical that can be a useful metaphor and a useful tool, just like taking out good debt to buy a home, I think is a smart thing to do. But then, you, you know, debt on a credit card is not a smart thing to do. So yeah, I've used it and I've seen value in that metaphor. Yeah, I'm curious how if it, you've had much experience over the years of working with other developers where and I say this as some, I mean, I feel like I'm even asking this question because I have, my own experience has been like, I think I use 
the metaphor wrong in the at one point where I'd be like, oh, it was code that I disagreed with, or I I didn't think it was uh, it was done the right way, or for whatever reason, I'm air quoting the right way. But I'd be like, oh, this is technical debt, you know. And I've seen developers go through the like a similar maturity level thing where like there's like I would have done it differently. This is painful to work with, so it's technical debt, but. Some of those areas were things that also we were very rarely ever needing to change as well. So is it technical debt or is it just a disagreement because it's not how you would do it with today's thing? Yeah, there's kind of this. So I've inherited a lot of projects. So I did many years I was a consultant. And so I would do rescue projects. And I've definitely experienced that inclination to blame the previous developer and like I didn't, I never wanted to, and I wouldn't like throw them under the bus to the client, but internally in my own brain, I'm like, what were these people thinking? Right. And a lot of that's just because I lacked the context that they actually had when they wrote it. And of course there is, you know, better and worse programmers. So there's some bad things out there in terms of code out there, but the desire to immediately determine something as this needs to be redone merely because it's not the way that I would do it is a it's a natural inclination. And I think it's when you have to fight, like you said, if the code isn't churned and it works, maybe you add some comments to make it more clear next time you come back to it in case you need to change it or something. But you know, that desire to rewrite things in your own image, I think is an ego thing, which we have to fight off. It's interesting. I, that's a good, that's a that's a good advice. If you're encountering an area of code where you're not needing to change it, but you have to keep reminding yourself how it works, modify it a little bit or, add some commenting in there, which I know that's something like in the Ruby on Rails community in particular, commenting is not like a common thing, I think, as, as much because we're like, wow, it's all super readable, but there's also unreadable or hard to follow code written in any language. And so um, I think sometimes there tends to be a lack of adding more commentary on what you're understanding there. Yeah, I definitely am guilty of that. I do appreciate when I come back to a comment that I was smart enough to leave before, because even though I can reparse that code in my head and figure out what it's doing again, it's like, why am I doing the same work I did six months ago? Leave a little comment. And at least it triggers you like, Oh yeah, I was here. This is why that's funky. And I know it immediately. I don't have to redo that work. Well, another topic that I wanted to dig into with you was around dependency management. And I think that maybe just thinking or Dependencies around like pulling in like third party, like say open source libraries, you know, in, in Ruby world, it might be like Ruby gems or Elixir. How do you go about assessing whether or not it's beneficial to loop, pull that in versus writing something yourself? Yeah, that's the age old question, isn't it? And I think it's one that we struggle with. I've also experienced, I think, a career arc with regard to this topic insofar as when I was very new, I, I had to pull in third party code because I couldn't actually accomplish what I wanted to accomplish on my own. I actually didn't have the skills to do so. So the choice was easy. Now I didn't see the maintainability side of it. You know, dependencies are your responsibility at the end of the day and maintaining a dependent heavy application is, can be hell. Hence the term dependency hell, right? Like we've all been there. And then once I gained some more acumen and was able to code a lot of things myself in terms of web applications, I could make that decision, right? Do I want to write this myself or do I want to use an open source library? And that decision became a lot harder because there is this other side of the equation, which is not invented here syndrome. We kind of have both extremes. You have dependency hell on one side 
or I'm going to depend on everybody's code. I'm not going to write a lick of code except for the glue. And then on the other side, it's like every line of code in this system is written by me, right? Now, nobody really lives at the, well, maybe the people do. I've never lived at either extreme extreme, but like we all kind of live somewhere on that continuum. And I think my appetite for third-party code decreased as my skills increased. But then there's also things where it's like, why am I going to reinvent a wheel that works just fine? And then there's the shared consciousness around a piece of software that's maintained by a community. 25 people, I think, are smarter than one person with regards to the different perspectives on the software and all the things that we get from shared dependencies. So how do I do it? Well, it kind of is on a case-by-case basis. You know, what is the goal how complex is it? How much time would it take me to write myself? Do I want to maintain this entire thing myself or do I want to maintain the relationship to these other people? Uh, it's not easy. I'm curious your thoughts because this is a hard this is a hard thing that I think we a lot of us struggle with is like when to do it and then how to do it. Once you decide I'm going to pull in a dependency, selecting that dependency and managing the relationship with that dependency is is an ongoing challenge. I think it's it's really easy decision to be like, I'm going to, we need file uploading or something in our application. So you're like, okay, well, what's the current most popular, say Ruby gem for managing file uploads or like, oh, now Rails has it built, built in. Even then you're like, well, is that quite the way that we need to kind of make that work? Or, or there's now third party SaaS products you could potentially tap into and you can completely just outsource that part of the project to some other system. And then you have to rely on that system being around. So there's this interesting thing of like, lots of different choices you can make there. And maybe file uploads are maybe not the best example, but there's I've also needed to help projects upgrade versions where those tools no longer are supported one day. And you know, like, you know, like it might be the most popular gem for file uploading right now in this era, but in five to ten years, that company that's been well known for building that piece of software is going to decide we're no, we're no longer taking care of this. We're done. It's it's deprecated. You need to move something else. And you're like the upgrade path, or maybe not even upgrade path, but the migration to something else path is not super clear. There's a lot of tools that help developers quickly launch something. I think a lot of like CMS, like automated automated CMS backend tools. We've had a lot of those in the Rails community over the years, like Active Admin, Refinery type tools that take very different patterns than that. And then you're like, oh, this is very limiting down the road, but it's also allowed us to build something really quickly back then. And so this is, it is a weird trade-off of being like, well, we can't upgrade because we have to swap out a bunch of gems. I don't feel like I've ever seen it done really well. At some point you need to take on the battle of being like, we're going to have to swap that out with something else. And maybe we could have built it something ourselves originally. There's also developers that, you know, occasionally they can take the stance of like, well, we can fork it and we can own it the way, the, the future of it. Okay. They're not supporting anymore. Does, does it mean that because someone else is no longer supporting it, that we can't continue to take care of our version inst- or the, the, the version that we're, re- we're relying on it and just kind of make that our own project to deal with. Not, not everybody runs or reads the source code of the third-party libraries and dependencies that they're evaluating either, but you can, and you can make changes to that and customize it to your heart's content. So that's something I always advise my team on is like, if we're going to be pulling in a dependency Look around in it, see if it's like something do you feel like if you needed to dig around and debug it yourself, do you feel like that's something you're gonna be able to do? Or is it kind of seem like magic? And so we're gonna be afraid to ever switch away from it or 
dig into it ourselves. Yeah, that's actually something I've written about. I think that before you pull in a dependency, I think you have to be willing. doesn't mean you're great at it or it's going to go perfect or whatever, but you have to be willing to dive into that source code. doesn't mean you ever, maybe it's perfect and it's a small little, I like those kind of dependencies where it's like, it's a single function. I don't really care what happens on the inside of that function, but I want the output of the function and I just call it and it works and that's it. Like small surface area, you know, that's nice. And ideally I would never have to look underneath the hood of that, but I need to be willing to look underneath the hood of that because ideally never works out right. Real world, actually the abstractions leak. I realize it's not doing the thing I want it to, or, or just stopped working one day. And if I'm not willing to go into that source code and into that project and maybe submit a patch or monkey patch in the case of Ruby or whatever, fork it and maintain my own, then I don't think I'm actually responsible enough to, to have a dependency. Now, I mean, people get away with it, but that just kind of, I come down and say, yeah, you got to be willing to, because otherwise it's going to bite you eventually. It can also be like an interesting challenge of, uh, I'm thinking about you know, a project that even my team uh, inherited within the last year where it was built to work with Stripe because the developers that originally worked on it you know, we're really, they like the documentation for Stripe. You know, it's really developer friendly, right? Mm-hmm. The client comes to us with a scenario of like, so they use like this a Stripe gem. I think even Stripe might be fairly involved in helping produce and stuff like that. But client comes to us and says, hey, we also want to integrate with PayPal because we've got customers around the planet and Stripe isn't available to charge by credit card everywhere. So how do we integrate this? And we're like, your whole application is like Stripe underscore ID you know, and like you, this is like a kind of getting into the whole like dependencies, but also that dependency stuff can drastically influence the kind of future of your ability to pivot. And you're like, okay, how do we going to refactor this project to allow more than just Stripe? Because everything is based off of like, what's the status of the Stripe subscription, you know? And it's like, right. Like Stripe is assumed throughout the entire system. Yeah. That's a real bummer. I've done that plenty of times. And I've learned from that. And so now, and for the past few years, I I take a wrapper library approach to to most dependencies. I won't say all because I'm sure I don't all the time, but especially a third-party service. Even if it's the thinnest wrapper that's just like there's another function on the stack that I own, I will put all the Stripe calls in a module or in a class, and I'll only call Stripe from inside that class. And isolating it to there allows for that easy switch later. Now, if it's in your database tables and stuff, then you've gone even further than this. But isolating the interface to that Stripe service into one place allows you to then only rewrite a single class or only rewrite a single module. And as long as your API changes, you're basically using your own API throughout your app instead of the Stripe API. And that I found is much more maintainable than what we naturally do, which is call Stripe whenever you need it. You know, kind of similar, related to dependency management, like, do you have strong opinions around when it makes sense to write your own small piece of software versus purchasing a piece of software or uh, whether that be a SaaS product or some off-the-shelf thing you can install on your servers? Yeah, I mean, I don't know if I have strong opinions. I have opinions. It's definitely an it depends, so we have to get into the details of each decision, but I did a show with Ahmad Nasri 
from Kong and he worked at NPM for a while, CTO of NPM, and he does consulting and stuff now. And he takes a very hard stance about this. He says you should only write code that you and your team are the only people who can write that. Like if it's not unique and special and what sets you apart as a business or as a team or an org, you should not be writing it. And so he thinks everything should be a dependency unless it's completely unique to me. I understand the wisdom in that because otherwise you're reinventing the wheel, you're spinning cycles, right? You're spending money that you don't need to be. I think there are times where it's an ROI kind of decision. You know, what's the cost of me building this versus the cost of me buying this? And let's talk about the total cost of ownership as well, because we can look at the price tag, but we, we often forget about integration documentation, you know, maintenance and change and churn. These are things that we don't think about with third parties as much as we do with our own things. So that's a hard calculation to make, but if you can like get a summary of the total cost of ownership of the service, or maybe as an open source library relationship, and then the total cost of ownership of building it yourself, which also has development, labor, maintenance, document, all the things, right? Each side. And one heavily outweighs the other. I think that makes a decision a little bit easier. It's like, well, it's going to cost me 10 grand to build it and 50 bucks to buy it. Sounds like a good idea, right? So a little bit quantified in that sense. How do you make that call? Yeah, it's and it's it's an interesting thing where I, you know, like over the years I've become more and more kind of against the idea of us. Every anytime my team, someone on the team starts to be like, oh, we can build this own, our own thing for this. I'm like, whoa, 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 whoa. We've done this a bunch of times over there. And you, like those, that person may be suggesting it may not have been around when we last built our own tool. And then like we tracked time for how much we maintained that and we're still maintaining some of it. I'm like, so yeah, we, we built our own time tracking tool many years ago and we were thought we were going to make it a product. And we're like, nope, this will just be Fs. But then we were like, wow, we've, we've poured in like 20 grand worth of time into this product that we use. And I'm like, we could just use Harvest. <laughs> And, you know, it's just like, okay, I'm killing the project, but then we have other, I find that like I end up being more open to the idea of us like building small glue type tools. Like, okay, we need to connect one API that's not directly integrated with another API. And this is something that just automates some data exchange. And this one example would be like, we use Jira for um, our client work, but then we're using Harvest. And so we have like a ta thing that automatically transfers time from Harvest into Jira tickets so that we can track actual, actual you know, estimates and actuals. Nobody else... You know, we've talked about, ooh, do we productize this? And then I'm like, but this is just solving our problem. Like, and this isn't forever. And we're like every six to six to twelve months we go, are there any tools that can do that for us now? But um, because otherwise it's like the thing that Robbie knows how to manage. But it, but I also know that I've had people kind of push back a little bit, like, well, when do we get to work on our own little pet projects, our own little experiments, you know? And so like that that can be interesting in a team to make sure that you're still giving them some flexibility to experiment and play with things, but then you're not. What? So it's the, uh, do we need to build something to scratch an itch or are we building something because we need to maintain it long term? Those are like two different calculations, I think, and you kind of need to uh, afford people the space to play. Totally. Yeah, that is definitely a difficult thing to balance. I know that we have this, uh, programmers have this, again, it's kind of the not invented here syndrome, but it's also this, optimism about what it takes to build something and what it takes to bring something to market 
like the the amount of work that's gone into harvest for example even before like to the point where they could sell it like it's dizzying the depth if you've ever worked on a side project and try to bring it to market and realize like okay the core functionality is there and i'm like 10 percent of the way done because there's so many things to bring that to market the you know the old meme is like the hacker news reader who's like i could build that in a weekend you know every time somebody puts their startup on hacker news it's like oh, i could build that in a weekend i totally understand that it's like we could build a cheap knockoff or a thing that approximates the core functionality of that in a weekend and maybe that's good enough for our use case and now we don't have a dependency cool but i think we underestimate how much it takes to actually build these things you know which is why that total cost of ownership is so important because I'm probably going to get my labor costs wrong when I estimate it, right? I'm like, oh, it's a weekend or that's a two-week project. And then six months later, you're still trying to finish it. So, but yeah, with your team and trying to give them things to work on that's not necessarily client work, right? They can be creative. They can hopefully, you know, build something that doesn't exist or that scratches an itch that could be turned into a product. I definitely understand that desire. Hi there. Do you know someone who might be looking for assistance with their Ruby on Rails application? Planet Argon would love to meet them. We're offering a $1,000 referral bonus. Send someone our way, and if they sign up for services with Planet Argon, we'll give them a $1,000 discount. And in return, you'll get a check for $1,000 in the mail, just for knowing the right person. Hop on over to planetargon.com slash referrals for more information and to refer someone our way. That's planetargon.com slash referrals. Thanks. So let's take a quick moment to talk about your role at Changelog Media. So for listeners who may not be familiar with the Changelog podcast and Changelog Media, what are you folks doing there? So we do news and podcasts for developers. We've been doing that for a long time now. The Changelog podcast is, I think, 13 years old and started off as a hobby. There's a three-hour free code camp podcast. If you want the whole backstory on Changelog, I will spare it from this conversation. But we have a portfolio of developer-focused podcasts, of which the Changelog is the flagship show. We have some other shows, Go Time if you're into Go, JS Party if you're into web development, etc. And we have a news feed. So we're basically linking out to and adding a little bit of commentary on what's fresh and new in the world of software and helping people keep up and know what's what's interesting and why. And that's the gist of what we do is news and podcasts. I mean, out of curiosity, do you get to do much development work these days? Yes and no. Sometimes, so I kind of go through phases. I've actually just gone back to a more heavy development flow the last couple of weeks, whereas I spent like November through the end of the year, I don't think I wrote a lick of code. Uh, we produce six shows a week, and I, I'm on a couple of those shows, and I produce the audio and engineering of those shows, and so we have like a schedule of things that have to get done, and then we have the platform, which is an open source Elixir app, which I built which I work on and progress. And it's always just like the thing that's there waiting for me when I have the free time. And so there's a long list of things we want to do with it, but I don't always get to work on it. And recently I've started to, to make some progress again. It's felt great. 
you know, so you know now that you've been able to recently do a bit of you know a bit more coding and such, it's always this interesting thing where like if you're tr- you, you're working in a space where you're keeping up to some degree with uh, what's going on in the in the industry and in our different programming communities, uh, what's new and stuff like that. And I know that for a lot of developers, myself in particular, uh, I struggle with that. I'm like I've actually kind of just given up. Like I I don't need to keep up with everything. It's just like. Because I don't know that it always felt like it was motivating me to just focus on the uh, the maintainable tasks, the you know the the maintenance work, the support work. You know, going back and like, well, that's great. That you know, maybe one day we can use that new technology stack. But like, I don't have any clients that need that right now, and I need to just go back and you know work on this older upgrade. I need to kind of I'm, I'm in the middle of and stuff like that. So does this being in that space where you're working and being exposed to new things? Do you find that as a motivating thing in your work as a developer, or is there kind of like an interesting paradigm that you're navigating yourself? So you're like, cool, new stuff, but then all right, let me go back to my old stuff for now. Yeah, well, we certainly don't adopt everything that we see and talk about. Um, sometimes the, the new shiny is attractive, and it's easy to get excited about new technology. I mean, that's one of the reasons I think we're in this industry because these things are in, in, intellectually stimulating to us. And when you get to talk to the creators of the thing and they come on your shows and they're super excited about it, like, of course, you you do get excited and you want to try new things. But realistically, there's too much. And a lot, actually, Adam and I were just talking the other day, we should go back through our back catalog and do a graveyard, you know, of like all the things that don't exist anymore that we've done shows on. Because it would be many. In fact, we visited, we revisited one show and just went through our show notes and the amount of links that 404, just from the show notes of a show that was four years ago, it's like 80% 404s on that show note links. And not because they were broken in the first place. Like they worked before. Just because, unfortunately, the internet is not as immutable as, as we think it is. And, and URLs do disappear despite our best efforts. So it is hard. You know, you have to actually place bets like like anybody else. What am I actually going to pick up and and try versus what am I going to think about and talk about and, and move on? I mean, ultimately we don't think everybody should be, you know, trying every new thing that comes out. I think some of that's to a certain degree, our job is to like be watching and trying things and talking to people and helping kind of distill down what's going on. So other people don't have to work so hard, you know, to keep up. I think the, the main thing you want to do is be abreast of, of trends, you know, it doesn't mean you have to be super deep, but have like a breadth of what's going on. And so at a point where you do poke your head up from that project that's maintained and maybe there is a greenfield moment or maybe there is a career change coming and you're trying to decide where do I invest my next six months or my next six years, you're more well aware of what is going on around you than you would be if you didn't you know, pay attention to, to the things that we do. So most of the stuff, we read about it, we talk about it, Maybe I get clone it, run the demo, check it out, and then move on. How long do you think that process usually takes you to go through and kind of and to explore a project? Do you feel like it's a couple hours you put into it or more? Uh, it depends on the, the way in which I'm covering it. So for changelog news, if it's interesting, and I'll I'll go beyond the readme usually, but I won't necessarily like execute everything that I link to. Like if it has an angle that I think is worth talking about, then I'll put it on changelog news. If it's going to be on a show, you know, like we had you come on our show and, 
we're going to dive into your project and try it out and use it and, and have experience if we can, um, because, you know, it's a deeper coverage, so to speak. So it kind of just depends. I think that's, it's interesting. I think, you know, just podcaster to, you know, you, you've de definitely been involved in way more episodes and I've had to learn to come up with my own rituals for things, but there's also times where there's topics that'll come up and I'm like, I don't, I'm not going to have time to like really dig into that. I don't really even know what that person specializes in, you know? And it's like, like I look at their company website and I'm like, what are these words? Like, what is this? Like, what, <laughs> what is this? Are these words? What does this mean? Like, and then so what's like, like, uh, you mean in a specific industry or like they're in a, they're in the, they're an SRE or like, are they're in a DevOps? Yeah. Or? More on like, usually typically when it's more in the DevOps side of things and I'm just like, what is going on over here? And like, this is fascinating that there's so much changing in that space. And so it's just like, how do you people keep up in this space? But, um, so that was one of the reasons why we did diversify into, a portfolio of shows. So the changelog was the only show, you know, we did one episode a week. And one of our sayings is we face our imposter syndrome, so you don't have to. And that's very true because a lot of times we do feel out of our depth with who we're talking to, even if we tried. Um, but we feel like maybe we're representing everybody else in that case. Like we're the curious person who doesn't get it. And that's probably the listener as well. So it works out. But then we had a lot of people saying like, Hey, you should do more go shows. You should do this. And it's like, I don't know anything about go. I mean, I do now because I've been producing GoTime and listening for a long time. So I know some stuff, but there's so many things that Adam and I with the changelog don't know anything about. And so we've just decided to diversify into other podcasts of which we don't host. Like I co-host JS Party sometimes, but I know about that community. We have a show on DevOps called Ship It with Gerhard Lazu because he's like deep in that stuff and he can be a good host for that. And we're trying to elevate other voices and expand the perspectives because there's no way we can cover it all for sure. So for those listening that might be contemplating the idea of like maybe one day starting a podcast, or what would you recommend kind of the, the things that they think about outside of like what hardware you should buy? Like, but in terms of like whether or not you should do it or not, or how to think about your figuring out what your, your focus is going to be, what, what advice could you offer them? I would say try to find something that's unique or different. I mean, I like the the maintainable aspect of your podcast because it like states the it states what it's it, it places at stake in the world right there in the name and in the the, the way you present it. Um, you know, two people talking into a microphone is not a unique thing, especially uh, two white dudes in the mic is like not the the most unique thing anymore. Like, there's lots of those podcasts, but carve out a niche, something that you're uniquely positioned to talk about or uniquely interested in, maybe not uniquely, but rarely, you know, like you really do care about this particular niche. And I think you niche down as far as you can, because there's a lot of general purpose shows, whether it's about software or about knitting, whatever it is, like the general knitting shows out there. But what, what do you bring that's unique? So I would figure that out and then think about what is the best show format for that particular thing. And then from there, it's all about consistency. It's about good guests. If it's a guest, you know, if it's an interview show and it's about building a community around the podcast. And if you can do that, you don't have to get huge. I mean, our shows are popular inside of software development, but they're not huge, generally speaking. And yet we've been able to parlay what we do into full time because of the focus, right? Because we have a small focused, loyal, community around it 
And that's fun too. You know, having people hanging out, talking about the thing that you're passionate about is fun. So yeah, consistency. First of all, you know, figure out who you want to be and then be that person and then consistency and community. I think one of the things that I, when I went into the process of doing this, I was like, you know, I tried doing a podcast many years ago and it was very generalist talking about new things with our team. And I think we ran out of like ideas really quickly. I'm like, what are we going to keep talking? It was just like a couple of us, like at a round table. I'm like, this isn't interesting. And so when the idea for this podcast originally kind of surfaced, probably about a year and a half before I actually started recording any, it was more of like, I'm going to sit on this for a little bit, but it was more of like, I knew I needed to think about the workflow because I have constraints because there's, um, and I know people that do their own podcasts and like they get bogged down because they're like, well, I don't have time to do the editing. I don't have time to do this. I can't afford to pay anyone or don't even think they could afford it. They're just like, I'll just take care of it all myself. And I knew that I needed to at least come up with a workflow that didn't completely depend on me micromanaging every step of every episode. Like, cause I'm like, that'll fall down quickly. And so I, we set it up in a way that I could to do that. And then I just like, just focus on trying to be a decent host and then try to get better at it. You know, it was just more like, well, that's why before the show, I congratulated you on being in the hundreds, right? Because most people don't make it that far. When I talk about the consistency, I think having a workflow or developing one over time allows you to stay consistent, allows you to continue to produce the show. But I think people need to come to a podcast with a long-term investment in mind because you know, unlike your TikTok channel or whatever, a podcast isn't going to go viral overnight unless you already have a huge audience or you're a celebrity or, you know, there are factors that might make it do that. But most podcasts don't make it to a hundred listeners. And so like, and the ones that do have been publishing for a while, you know, or uniquely good. And so you need to be in it for the long haul. And there's huge values. There's huge value in a podcast when it's sustained. But most of us fade out quickly because it's a lot of work. Like you said, like it's a grind. Audio production is a grind. And so you have to have some sort of way of making that sustainable while you build that back catalog and while you, you know, give it time to reach some people. You know, you mentioned you've been able to, you know, build a community around like Changelog and various podcasts that you're, you're running there. And that's something that admittedly I haven't felt like I've been able to do a lot of like outside of like we're posted on social media and stuff like that. And people occasionally mention us and occasionally we'll get some reviews, you know, on Apple podcasts or something. And, but it's, it is an interesting medium where it doesn't really pull in people in the same way. Cause they're kind of listening in isolation on their, like on a walk or running or in their car. So it's, they're not like, Ooh, that's, I like what so-and-so had said. They don't remember, or maybe they don't even think to remember. So I, sometimes I feel a like, well, I don't even know that a lot of people are listening. Like I see like the, like the stats, Right. Totally. But it's even that I'm like, wow, is it being received well? And then occasionally I was on a call yesterday with someone and he was just like, I just want to take a quick moment. Also, just like, I love your podcast. And I was <laughs> like, oh, great. This is like some of the best feedback I've had in months, you know, as a party. I'm not and I'm saying this out loud, not for everybody to reply, you know, to me on Twitter and be like, you know, praise, praise me. <laughs> if you're listening to this, tell Robbie that you like his podcast. No. I need a little bit of uh, positive reinforcement sometimes. It can be a kind of a quiet thing. So I always would say for people listening that are thinking of their own podcast, be prepared for not a lot of feedback for a little while as well. Like it's, totally. It's kind of a, you kind of have to kind of build up the uh, consistency and not wonder like, well, is anyone even listening? Yeah, it's kind of like on the internet, you know, there's there's this ratio. I'm not sure the exact ratio, but like for every one person that comments, there's probably 10 people that feel that way or maybe it's 100. I don't know. 
But on podcasting, it's like one in a thousand because most people just don't interact with podcasts. It's a weird medium in so far as there's really no uniform way to interact with a podcast. You have to kind of go out of your way to do it. And while we have built communities around our shows, you know, in Slack and online, we still feel starved for feedback at times. And so, you know, hang in there. I remember one time, you know, we put a lot of work into our outros. We do a custom outro for pretty much every episode where we talk, you know, we thank people, we talk about what's going on next. And, you know, you're recording the voiceover for something. And, and at one point, I think it was JS party. I just put in the outro. I'm like, does anybody actually listen to this? Like, are you listening? Please email me if you listen to this. And we put a lot of calls to action in our outros and get nothing in response. But that particular one, I got like 12 emails like, yes, I listened to the outros. Please keep doing them. I'm like, oh, finally, there you are. Where have you been? You know, so they're out there. They're just quiet. We'll be back with our interview with Jared in just a moment. Hi, it's me, Robbie. I just wanted to take a quick moment to say thank you for making time to listen to the Maintainable Software Podcast. Are you finding these conversations valuable? Are you actually even listening? Do you actually care that I do these little call-outs? Do you find these remotely interesting? Am I boring you? Am I exciting you? Say hi on Twitter. Yeah, that, that's it. But also, if you have a moment to write a view on Apple Podcasts, that's also great too. Um, I know it's kind of a lot of work to find your way to even that interface there, but that is one of the few places where you can write a few things and you know give me three, four, or five stars, or even a one star if you're finding this particular episode just horrible. Anyways, also, do you know anyone in the industry that I should be interviewing on Maintainable? Shoot me an email to Robbie with a Y at maintainable.fm. And now let's get back to our interview with Jared Santo. So one more development-related question before I kind of wrap things up. Um, I'm curious, do you find yourself more on the team rewrite or team refactor side of things? Mm, I'm team refactor. I just feel like the, well, it depends on the size of a rewrite. So yeah, maybe define the teams for me, like big rewrite or little rewrite, you know, delete the delete the function or rewrite the function. Uh, I don't really do that. I, I change it from the inside. So I'm definitely a, a refactor. I did TDD for a long time. I'm not, I'm not strict TDD, but when I do TDD, I always try to go back and do the refactor step because I feel like that's the one everybody skips. Like, like red, green, move on, red, green, move on. And you got to remember it's red, green refactor. That being said, I don't always succeed at refactoring immediately. Sometimes it takes a step back and return. And then you realize actually there's a better way of doing this. And so the refactor can come later, but unless you mean like little rewrites, cause that's what a refactor kind of is a little rewrite. I've never been a big rewrite kind of guy. And I think of a lot of the scenarios where let's say if you have the scenario where you have, you're working on a web application and it's, it's running on older versions of libraries and dependencies you've inherited. There's that tendency, maybe depending on where you are in your career of being like, well, this isn't the new hot thing anymore. So should we, is it actually better for me to suggest to my company, client, whoever's footing the bill, could be yourself, uh, to rewrite this whole thing and the new popular, seemingly trending tech stack, or should we just stick with what we have and keep iterating on it? So again, it would definitely depend that I've given both advice. 
in different circumstances. I like legacy code because it's de facto useful, right? It's it's providing value. Otherwise, it wouldn't be legacy. Like nobody would care about it anymore. The fact that you still care about it means this was valuable software, and it continues to be valuable software. And so I'm just not ready to just throw out valuable software. Now I can I can get to a point where it's valuable, but it's so rigid and decrepit and stuck that there's actually no path forward. I got into that exact place with a customer where there was just no upgrades for a very long time. I think it's Rails 2.3.5 to this day. They're still running it. Um, I don't know. I no longer do consulting, so they're no longer a customer of mine, but unless things have changed recently, they're still running it. And there was a point where it was like open SSL upgrades and this old gem, like you just couldn't actually work on it anymore without a substantial either bring it up to snuff, which was like darn near a rewrite, or start from scratch with fresh technology and run it in parallel. And I told them I would do either one. I thought the rewrite was actually going to cost them less money. So there's a time and a place where it's like, we can't move this thing forward at any sort of speed that makes sense, right? It's going to cost too much. Then I'm cool with the rewrite, but I think if it can be brought forward, then that's where I'd spend my time. What do you think contributes to those scenarios where they do get stuck and they're not able to keep iterating? Is it, uh, do you feel like it's developers not kind of advocating for those updates, them kind of, or the clients maybe not having the budget and they said no one or two times, like maybe not right now, let's come back to this and then, or switching between freelancers or different companies that are working on it, if they've outsourced the development or whether their own internal team, because this happens to lots of projects and it's very likely a lot of projects that are starting now will find themselves in a similar situation and for six years from now, if they don't keep up on that stuff. So where do you think things start to break down? Yeah, I mean, I think there's definitely different ways it can break down. In this particular case, it was lack of budget because I was I was helping them. I was the second team on this. I didn't build it originally. I inherited it, and I brought it up to like the modern of the Rails two. Um, but every time I try to talk them into slightly more than keeping it running, then they just didn't have the budget to do that. And so this went on for years and I would do features and I would say this feature would be cheaper if we spent some money on bringing it up to, to modern times and then do the feature and you'd, you'd move much faster and you get a lot more features for less money. And they'd say, well, we don't really have the budget for that. We'll just do the feature, you know? And at at a certain point I got to where I just, I can't do this anymore. That feature cannot be implemented in its current state. I think developer churn is probably also plays a large part, not on that particular project, but on other ones I've seen. You do have to have buy-in from the stakeholders of maintenance. It's kind of like people selling tests as part of what they do. And like, can you get your boss to let you write tests on the job? You know, how do you go about doing that? Well, your boss has to see the value in writing tests. And the way I approached that with my consulting and when I was, you know, working with customers is I just didn't give them the choice. It was like, that's just how I write software. So, you know, if you're... It's not extra. Yeah, it's not extra. It's just built into the price. And if I'm too expensive, then you can go somewhere else. That's okay. But I'm not going to not write tests to save you money because I know in the long run, it's going to cost you money, even though you may not see it. Lack of budget, developer churn, those are definitely themes that resonate with my experience over the years. And we've, deep down, I don't like working on new projects because I often worry that outside of like, I just don't find myself being super excited about starting a brand new application because it 
because we don't know if it's going to be valuable to the end users until they actually start using it. And so I like working on say, legacy projects because they they have value and they're they're in production. They've got and so you're like, oh, I can go and optimize this. And how do I improve things and like make things even better for people and the end users and the customer? But so often I have had so many conversations over the years where they're, I'm like, we really need to take care of some of these versioning things. Like one of the reasons you called me is because developers are throwing their hands up saying, I'm super stuck, you know? And and then they're like, well, wow, you're, this is going to be really expensive to do this. But I'm like, well, you've been saving money for years because you've not been taking, you know, maintaining it. And so it's like, that was, that was like, maybe you weren't consciously doing that, but you were, you know, and, or the developers just building up. And so it's just becomes this, like, you're putting it off for a long time. And now it's like, now you're going to have to spend money to take care of this. And then they go, well, maybe we should rewrite it because we won't have all these problems again. It'll be fresh. And, and that's the, the counterpart to the clean up the mess versus let's create a new thing that's new and shiny, but you're creating a new mess. Yeah, you're just going to repeat the same process over. Some of that I think is the maybe the business model of agencies or the the way that software is thought about by customers. of custom, I'm talking about custom software here, of course, is that we view it as like this thing that you buy. Like it's like buying a new car. And maybe that's not a good example because you do have to maintain a car. But a car isn't, is a car living? I don't know. I'm starting to think this is not the best choice. You think there's like this price tag and you're going to buy some custom software. Maybe that price tag has some variables based on scope or time or whatever. And then when you're done, like you own it and it's done. Well, good software, valuable software is never done. And so if it's sold that way and maybe that contract ends and that company moves on and it's valuable and it was, it, let's just assume it was well-written, it may sit there and serve its purpose for four years, six years and not need any touching until it does. And then you're like, oh, we're five version, we're five major versions behind. There's actually no upgrade path. And so I think that does happen from time to time as well. It's just because people think about it as a one-off purchase and not as an ongoing relationship with people working on the software. When companies do approach us and they 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 look to get an estimate, we give them a swag, which scientific wild ass guess, you know. S- stuff we all get. Oh no. <laughs> and so we'll we'll, we'll say like this is what we think it might take to get out the door, but this is what you're going to need to spend over the next three to five years at a minimum. And usually scares people away, to be honest. And they're like, whoa. And you're like, yeah, it'll, we get this out the door, but if you, know, if you need to spend another 100K a year, they're like, whoa, wait, what? Oh, I thought, isn't it going to be done? And it's like, so it's like a lack of knowing that there's like long-term. Yeah. Well, custom software is expensive. That's one of the things I tell people right up front, like going back to the build versus buy, but let's like take a customer who's like, I need some software. Do I build it or buy it? I tell people all the time, if you can be well served by some off the shelf software, please do it. Like if you can use Basecamp for this or whatever it is, right? You can just use Harvest, do it. But if you absolutely cannot, like that's your first test, I think as a business is like, can we use off-the-shelf software? Or can we take some and maybe hire some glue? You know, Planet Argon might come in and write some of those scripts that like this this trans the translation layer between this and that. Cool. That's so much cheaper than a custom software because you have to maintain that. Like it there's a lot of costs in there that people don't recognize. And they like I said, they think they're buying a one-off thing. So it's a good way of doing it is giving them like upfront costs and then like, here's what you should expect over three to five years. But when you say that to people, a lot of them just walk, you know, they don't want to hear that, that just, yet. no, <laughs> not, 
they don't even, and sometimes the people that I'm talking to, they don't even know if they're going to be at their company in three to five years, you know? So it's just kind of like, well, that's not my problem right now. Like my problem is like what I need to do this next year. We need to get this thing out the door. <laughs> yeah. And I got to make my impression, you know, I got, I got to, I got to be successful with my project now. That's another reason for the big rewrite too. Cause it's justifiable as well. Right. Like it's, it's sexier. And so you can say, ah, the, you know, that was somebody else caused this problem. I'm here to fix it. We're going to start fresh, brand new tech, etc. I think it's easier to get management or, you know, the C-level to buy into the idea as opposed to spending a bunch of time and effort on something that everybody currently hates because it's not working right, you know? I think that's some really good advice for people thinking, you know, especially if developers, if you're contractors, freelancers, thinking around you know, how you're communicating with your prospective clients thinking about like, and also because you can also then kind of map out whether or not you think there's going to be more work with them in the future as well. So it's not really just thinking about like, how much does it cost to build X? It's like, what's the cost to get to X and start, you know, that's, that's the, the starting line for the, you know, the project, you know, it's like, cool, we have this idea, this proof of concept, let's get it out the door, see what happens. And then you're going to iterate on that and improve things. Um, you know, I think we, hopefully most people are thinking like, Let's try to get them, you know, a minimum viable product out the door, but whether that's for an internal usage or an actual product you know, application. So with that, Jared, where can listeners best follow your thoughts and ruminations on software development and what's going on in technology online? So everything we do at Changelog, which is the main place that I write, publish, and speak is at changelog.com. Well, it's been such a delight having you join us on Maintainable, Jared. Thank you so much for talking shop. I had a blast. Thanks for having me.